Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to uh, Mark chapter 15. And we'll be in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse uh, 40, and then going through Mark 16, verse 8. And thank you, Jonah, for reading that passage for us uh, this morning. Uh, and this morning, as Dad had mentioned, this is the final uh, week of us preaching through the gospel according to Mark, which uh, we started journeying through it uh, almost about two years ago. And uh, you might be looking at your Bible and hearing that I'm stopping at, at Mark 16, verse 8, and you might be thinking, now, wait a minute, Grant, like my Bible has some more, uh, more verses there after verse 8, so what's, what's going on with that, okay? And so what most of your Bibles probably say is you probably have uh, some sort of parentheses or a bracketed uh, kind of writing after verse 8 uh, that says the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Uh, you see... As we have discovered more and more biblical manuscripts, of we, we've seen that possibly verses 9 through 20, that they were not in some of the earliest manuscripts, and so it's likely that they were not a part of Mark's original gospel, but they were added at a later time. And so, uh, therefore, even though those verses might be true, because a lot of those truths we see in those verses we see in, in Matthew and Luke's original accounts, uh, uh, that being said, it's likely it was not a part of Mark's original account, and therefore... Uh, uh, I've decided not to preach uh, through it. Uh, I figure that there are, there's enough in here uh, that we know for sure was in the earliest manuscripts, and so I will just keep preaching through that. Once I run out of that, we'll come back to some of the other uh, stuff that we're not sure about, okay? Uh, but, but really, really knowing uh, Mark, and when I talk of Mark, I'm talking about John Mark, who, uh, who wrote this gospel uh, account. Uh, really, verse 8 really just fits like how Mark, uh, it's so Mark-style. Okay, because all throughout the gospel, according to Mark, uh, as if you read if you read this book uh, all at once or in a couple of sittings, uh, you'll see Mark's style is very abrupt, right? Like he's all about cutting from scene to scene. I mean, Luke's account is much more detailed, right? But Mark's just like hitting the highlights. He's abrupt. Uh, you'll see the word immediately uh, written a lot, like immediately this and immediately that. And so it should be no surprise to us uh, that the end of Mark's uh, gospel account would end in such an abrupt fashion. And so if you get to verse 8, and uh, it feels like an abrupt ending to this, uh, you are correct, all right? That is, that is Mark's style. This is an abrupt ending, and it kind of just leaves us hanging with this truth of the resurrection. And so uh, we're going to end there, but we're going to pray. Let me pray for us another time here, and we'll jump into, into the text this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this, uh, this book of the Bible that you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the fruits that it has produced in our lives as we've studied it and as we've preached it and as we've received it. And so we ask as we're coming to it uh, another time, Lord, that you would move and work in powerful ways. Uh, God, we ultimately, we are, we are longing and we are desiring for your, your presence here this morning. Lord, we cling to you and your truth. Lord, where, where else can we go to find words of life? And so, Father, I just, I, I beg and I plead, Lord, would your kingdom come, would your will be done in Franklin as it is in heaven? And Jesus, we want to know you, and we want to know the power of your resurrection this morning. 
Lord, the, 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 the words and the message I have prepared, Lord, it's, 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 it's not worthy of how glorious your resurrection is. So I ask that in spite of me, that you would, you would give us a taste, Lord, that you would give us a taste, uh, that you would, you would satisfy our hunger and our thirst for you, and that you would increase our appetite to want more of you. Lord, give us a taste of your glory this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let me, uh, let me catch you up a little bit. It was kind of a big week last week. Uh, if you missed it, uh, we, we studied the, the crucifixion. All right, we studied Jesus dying on the cross, which if you're new to Christianity, it's kind of a big deal. All right, it's a big part of this whole thing. Uh, and uh, we saw in Mark that Jesus, he willingly suffered and he willingly gave his life up for us. He was temporarily forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we would no longer be separated from the presence of God. And we saw uh, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And we learned the beautiful truth that for those in whom Christ now dwells, uh, we can trust and we can rest that God will never leave us and God will never forsake us. We will be forsaken and abandoned by people in our lives. People will leave, people will die, and yet we can trust and we can rest that God will never leave us or forsake us. That's what we talked about last, last week, and we left off at the climax of the story of Mark's gospel. Because ever since the opening verses of Mark's gospel, ever since that point, we've been longing for a human being to proclaim that Jesus is not only the Christ, but that he is the Son of God, meaning that he is literally God in the flesh. We've been longing for a human being to proclaim that. And we left off last week with the proclamation of who Jesus really was. And it did not come from Peter. It did not come from James or John. It did not come from one of the religious leaders of the day. It came from an unlikely source. It came from an unlikely convert. It came from a Roman centurion who saw Jesus' death on the cross and all the events that had transpired around it. And this centurion who had witnessed hundreds, if not thousands of crucifixions, he's standing at the foot of the cross and he says, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly, this man was the son of God. And now we pick up in verse 40, okay? Mark 15, verse 40. And it says, there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and younger of Joses and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, Mark, Mark is showing us that there were many women who were followers of Jesus and were watching these events unfold. Women that had been with him back in Galilee and, and were amongst the disciples and following here. And, and John's account also mentions, mentions these women as well. And uh, we, we are trying to kind of piece together, okay, who are all these women that are at kind of the foot of the cross and are watching all these things unfold? And uh, John's account in John 19, uh, verse 25, Kevin, if we got John 19, 1925, uh, he, he writes there, he says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
okay? And so uh, we won't get caught in the weeds here of trying to figure out who all is here uh, because it gets kind of confusing because they're all named Mary, okay? Everyone's named Mary. I'm like on the whiteboard drawing this out, right? Like is, is Mary the wife of Clopas? Is that the same as, as Mary the mother of Salome? And is, is Mary the mother of James, uh, Jesus's mother? Because he's got a brother named James or is it his aunt? Because he's got a cousin named James, right? And so it's confusing. They're all named Mary. Uh, what I know for sure, there was a bunch of, there was a lot of Marys there, okay? And uh, it's the same way, like if you're new to this church and you introduce yourself to one of the women here, uh, percentages say it will likely be an Alyssa, right? You'll likely will meet an Alyssa if you introduce yourself today, which we love all of the, our Alyssas. If you don't know them, you should meet one of them today, okay? But, uh, but in the same regard, there was a lot of Marys there and there was a lot of other women. And Mark says that, that uh, essentially, right, it's, it's, uh, um, they're all there. They're watching these events unfold. One that we know was there was Mary Magdalene, okay? Mary Magdalene is there. And Mary Magdalene was the Mary that Jesus had cast seven demons from, and now she's been following Jesus ever since. And she'll be one of the Marys at, at the empty tomb as well. And some have considered her the first evangelist as she is commissioned by the angel to go and tell the good news that Jesus has risen. I mean, here is a woman who had been possessed by demons, and she is one of the first to chosen by God to go proclaim the good news that Jesus has risen. I mean, as I'm, you know, I think as we all battle this, this idea of like, who are we to go share the good news of Jesus with others, right? We can like play those mind games. Like certainly there's other people more worthy than me. There's people better studied than me. Like, 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 why would God choose me to go proclaim his good news? And yet we see this all throughout uh, the kingdom of God. He, he sends the unlikely, he sends the unworthy, and he commissions them to go proclaim the good news that Jesus has risen. And here's Mary Magdalene, who's, who had been demon-possessed, who Jesus had, had, had healed and freed her from her oppression. Now she's going to be one of the first to go proclaim that Jesus has risen. W- one of the other Marys there was Jesus' mother, right? It's Christmas time. You know about Mary, and you can remember, right, back to that whole uh, time of, uh, of the birth leading up to, to Jesus, right, and Mary's pregnancy, but you can just imagine, just imagine being a parent. Just imagine being a mother. Man, I can't talk ever about being a parent when I'm preaching. I don't expect it to happen, but then it happens in my eyes. They get watery. Uh, but imagine, right, being Mary standing at the foot of the cross watching a son. Man, I should not have even gone there. Uh, right, be, her son who is supposed to be the Messiah, the Christ, like to watch him be crucified. And then, there, and then her sister there, or, or perhaps her sister-in-law is there, whose, whose name is, is Mary as well. And they're there and they're watching these events unfold. And look back at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid." Okay, remember, it is, it is Friday, and, and Sabbath starts at sundown for the Jewish people. And, and Joseph of Arimathea, here, he's a, he's a respected member of the Sanhedrin. He goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised by this, that Jesus was already dead. Uh, but the Roman centurion, who's an expert in crucifixions, right, he confirms that Jesus is dead. All right, these are, these are experts uh, in this whole crucifixion process, all right? So the centurion says, no, he didn't just pass out. He didn't just faint, right? I know how to kill people, the Roman centurions would have said, right? Like, like he is dead. But, but look at Joseph for a second, because it's interesting, right? He's a respected member of the Sanhedrin. And all throughout Mark, I mean, when we've seen the Sanhedrin, that's like when the bad guy music plays in the background, right? And they're all coming in and they're like attacking Jesus and asking him a bunch of questions, trying to catch him. They're like all opposed to him. Uh, but it's interesting to see that there were some in the Sanhedrin that, that were at least intrigued by Jesus and maybe even believers that Jesus was the Messiah. And so here's Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he might have been drowned out by the louder voices of the Sanhedrin, but he was... He He's, he's intrigued by Jesus. He was maybe even a follower of Jesus. And we saw Nicodemus, who's also a part of the Sanhedrin, was in a similar, uh, a similar point. But notice the courage of Joseph to go to Pilate and ask for the body of someone who'd just been condemned to be crucified, okay? It, it took courage to do this because Romans did not usually release uh, executed prisoners' bodies, okay? Usually the Romans would leave bodies on crosses for a few days so that as the bodies uh, decomposed and decayed, it would be a warning to others not to mess with Rome. Other times the bodies would be thrown out into the city dump outside of Jerusalem. But Joseph, he takes courage, and as one who was looking for the kingdom of God. I love that, that phrasing there, right? He took courage as one who was looking for the kingdom of God. He asks for the body. He takes Jesus down from the cross. He puts a linen around him, and he lays him likely in his family's tomb, okay? And I, we don't need to go into this further, but let me just point out, it is typically those that are looking for the kingdom of God that take courage, that God gives courage to, right? And I love, I love that phrasing. Joseph as one who is looking for the kingdom of God. And then look at who's at the graveside, okay? You've been to graveside services before. It's an interesting collection of people at the graveside service here. Here we have two women, right? Mary and Mary. Here we have a Pharisee, Joseph. And in other accounts, we learn that Nicodemus is there as well, okay? So we don't have Peter, James, and John. We don't have kind of the likely people that would be there. Uh, we have two women and we have two Pharisees at Jesus's graveside, okay? And Jesus, Jesus really died, he really died. The centurion confirmed it. Pilate confirmed it, right? Joseph of Arimathea confirmed it. 
But in the words of a great old uh, pastor and preacher, S.M. Lockridge, who dad shared a few verses from, uh, a few passages from a sermon of his, uh, yes, Jesus is dead, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And I can't preach it like SM can, uh, but I won't even try, right? But it's Friday, right? Jesus has died, but we know Sunday is coming. And here's where the, here's where the skeptics, though, come in, okay? Uh, because there are a lot of skeptics of the resurrection of Jesus, because really you have to do something with the resurrection of Jesus, okay? The evidence is there. The tomb is empty. Something dramatic happened in history, right? There in Jerusalem in AD 33 or whatever year you want to count it as, like something huge happened in the world. And so you either have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or you have to come up with some theory uh, to explain what all happened. And so skeptics come in and say, uh, one, one of the theories is that, no, he didn't actually die. Uh, he just kind of fainted on the cross. He just passed out. This is called the swoon theory, all right, the swoon theory. And this theory says that Jesus fainted on the cross, and then a few days later in the tomb, he regained consciousness. An earthquake just coincidentally moved the stone away, and he walked out of the tomb. And now, 2,000 years later, people all over the world are worshiping Jesus, even in places like Franklin, Indiana, all because uh, Jesus fainted on the cross and then regained consciousness a few days days later. That's the swoon theory, one of the theories that critics have come up with. Would you guys like to hear some of the other theories that critics have come up with? All right, well, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, I don't even know why I asked, all right? Yeah, but it is one of the benefits to being the only person in a room with a microphone on when you ask questions. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the answer is. I'm going, all right? So here, there's another uh, theory that critics have come up with. It's called the spirit theory, the spirit theory. And this is uh, something that Jehovah's Witnesses hold to. Um, uh, they hold to the view that Jesus's body wasn't physically raised, but he just kind of returned um, at, in a spirit form. Okay, so they don't, they just, it's a spirit theory. He didn't, his actual body didn't resurrect, but he just, his spirit kind of appeared. And so when they knock on your door at dinner time, that might be a conversation starter for you, okay? Uh, another theory that critics kind of come up with is the hallucination theory. And those that hold to this theory believe that Jesus preconditioned his disciples uh, by means of hypnosis to hallucinate uh, with certain like prearranged cues, okay? So you've seen, kind of people who hypnotize people, right? They snap their fingers and they act like uh, a chicken or something like that. Uh, this theory says that Jesus had preconditioned them uh, by hypnosis to kind of hallucinate that he was there. Then there's uh, the stolen body theory, okay? And the stolen body theory says that the disciples or someone else bribed the soldiers so that they could get in, they could steal the body, they could hide Jesus's body forever, they can keep it a secret forever, uh, and they kept it a secret their whole lives, and they all went on to actually be martyred and killed uh, for uh, someone that they had just stolen and hid. And, and that whole time, there was no leaked emails, there was no leaked text, no one, no one at the, you know, when they were going to be crucified themselves. No one said, hey, you know, uh, actually, we just made this whole thing up, right? But that's, that's the stolen body theory, that, that someone just, they, the disciples stole the body and hid it. And then there's, this is an interesting one, there's the wrong tomb theory, okay? The wrong tomb theory. Now, 
<clears throat> now, men, be careful with this one, okay? So anytime I say something that could be divisive between men and women, I at least want to give you a warning. Uh, so men, do not elbow, do not sigh, do not, do not hum, do not, just don't breathe or move for a second, okay? Uh, now, I did not come up with this theory, uh, but some people say the wrong tomb theory, uh, they say they claim uh, that the women who were the first ones to go maybe were not the best with navigation and directions, and they just ended up at the wrong tomb, okay? Now, man, I said be careful. Don't, why, why people are laughing, don't laugh, right? Right? I, I do not hold to that theory, but that is a theory, right? Right? That, that, that just some bad directions. They meant to go to North Main Street, the tomb on North Main Street. They ended up at South Main Street, and they're just, uh, they were mistaken. They were at the wrong tomb. And then this, let me just share one more with you. This is probably my favorite. Uh, it's the twin theory, the twin theory, okay? And this was a philosopher in 1995. He came up with this theory, which it certainly is the most creative. We'll give him props for that. Uh, the twin theory says that Jesus had an identical twin uh, who was, they were separated at birth. And uh, after Jesus was crucified, his twin shows up and uh, claimed to be the risen Jesus. And, uh, and, and that's kind of how all that happened. All right, but listen, listen, the reason that all these theories exist is because you have to do something about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, you can't just remain neutral about it. The evidence is there. The tomb is empty, right? Jesus appeared to, to hundreds. There were hundreds of witnesses of this account. So you can't just remain neutral about it. And, and after Jesus appeared to all these witnesses, then Christianity just spread, spread like wildfire across the globe, all after a carpenter from Nazareth was crucified by Romans, and, and his followers were a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, and it's like, okay, something happened there, right? Something happened in Jerusalem and Galilee at this time. You can't just remain neutral about it. You have to either believe it or you have to come up with another theory to try to disprove it. Either you believe Jesus rose from the dead or you don't, but you can't remain neutral on it. And this is, this is such a big deal because it changes everything. It changes everything. It should change everything, okay? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, I mean, there are better things to do on a Sunday morning, right? Like, like we, like, like just coming and like playing church, right? Like that's, it's not, there's better things to do, right? Like what are we doing here if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, right, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins, but if Jesus did rise from the dead, if Jesus did rise from the, bed, de the dead, excuse me, then e that changes everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he really was who he said he was, and therefore we have to listen to him. We have to obey him, even when it's not convenient or comfortable or popular, because he was who he said he was. If he really rose from the dead, then we must follow him and surrender our whole selves to him. It should change everything, right? Like if he rose from the dead, we must, we have to follow him. For example, if you are in a battle zone, 
okay? If you're in a battle zone and, uh, and, and you're, you're teamed up with a Navy SEAL and the Navy SEAL goes out ahead of you and defeats one of your biggest enemies, like one of the biggest threats you had on the battlefield, the Navy SEAL went out, defeated them, he was victorious, he comes back, it's time for the next mission, now, are you telling him, hey, you follow me this time, or are you following him? You, you should be following him, right? Like, it would be pridefully ridiculous to be like, hey, you had that one, good job. Now follow me. Like, I'll show you how to work these nunchucks and my skills here. Like, I know you defeated that enemy, but, but I'll, I'll take this one. No, no. When someone goes out like that and defeats our biggest enemy, like, we follow them, and listen, Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has defeated our biggest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And he walks out of the tomb victorious, and he comes to us and tells us to follow him. And yet, when we look at our lives, it looks a lot more like Christians wanting Jesus to follow us instead of us following Jesus. Can I say that? Like, Jesus, thank you for that, but, but we're going to lead from here, okay? Uh, Jesus, you come behind us and, and kind of clean up our mess. Uh, we'll call upon you when we need you, uh, but we're going to live how we want to live, and, and we'll just, you know, uh, every now and then find a saying of yours that's encouraging, and we'll pull it, uh, we'll, we'll pull it out, we'll bring you up when it's convenient, but otherwise, could you just follow us, and we're going to lead, the resurrection of Jesus cannot be ignored. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we must follow him. And what I mean by following Jesus is not, is not following someone like we now think of following someone, like following someone on Instagram uh, or following someone uh, right on Twitter um, or MySpace, right? Some, of you, if some people have still said MySpace, probably Devin. If you need an intro on MySpace, talk to Devin, uh, right? But like, that's not what I mean by following Jesus, right? Following Jesus is not just like kind of seeing what he's up to and kind of just checking in with him every now and then. No, when the Bible talks about following Jesus, when Jesus says to, to his followers, like, come follow after me, he's saying, come spend time with me, right? Come be with me. Come uh, not only just be with me, but become like me. Right? That is what a follower of Jesus should look like, what a disciple of Jesus should look like. We should be spending time with Jesus. We should be coming like Jesus. We should be doing the things that Jesus did, and we should be going where Jesus calls us to go. That's what I mean when I say we are followers of Jesus. I mean, we should be spending time with him. We should be becoming like him. We should be doing what he did and going where he calls to go. Everything in our lives should be yielded to the resurrected Jesus the resurrected, victorious Jesus. But some of us, we haven't even considered if what we're doing each day is actually following Jesus, right? Like, like I think most of our lives uh, are lived out um, where if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like, like nothing would even be noticed different in our life, Right? Like some of us aren't even considering each day is today. Am I following Jesus today? 
Like, Jesus, is this the job that you want me to have, right? Like, Jesus, is this, I, I trust that you can provide. I know I'm supposed to work hard, but Jesus, is this what you ha would have for me to do today? Jesus, is this how you would want me to spend my time today? Like, are we asking him those questions, or are we just kind of living and just hoping that he'll kind of come and clean up our mess? Or are we asking him, Jesus, how do you want me to spend my time today? Jesus, how do you want me to steward my money today? Jesus, who do I need to love and serve today? Jesus, who do I need to share the gospel with today? And the truth of the resurrection, it should touch and it should affect every aspect of our life. And if it's not, and if it's not, my questions for you are, do, one, do you really believe that he rose from the dead? Do you really believe that he rose from the dead, right? And, and if you do, what about your life reflects the fact that you are following a living Savior? A living Savior. He's alive right now. This isn't just some historical person that we're studying and we're trying to, um, um, you know, model our lives after, right? I was uh, in preparation for the sermon. I was listening to uh, Shai Lin and in one of his songs, right, he's talking about Jesus is alive. We're going to play it after the service. Uh, but I love the song. He, the Most of the song, he's just talking about all the people that are dead, right? Like Gandhi's dead, Buddha's dead, Muhammad's dead, like Elvis is dead, Tupac, we're like, maybe, uh, and, uh, but like everyone is dead, but then the chorus is like, but Jesus is alive, right? I can't sing, but as it goes like that, and then you should all, you should listen to it. It's a good song, right? Um, but like Jesus is alive, like all these other people that we try to learn from and read from and, and model our lives after, they're all dead, but Jesus is alive right now, today, right now he's alive. What about your life today and what about your life tomorrow will reflect that you are following a living Savior? That's a good car ride home conversation, okay? Because listen, I don't think when Jesus showed up in his resurrected body to his disciples, right, he showed up and he's showing them, I don't think they went home on Monday and it was just like back to life as normal, right? It wasn't like, oh yeah, we saw Jesus, he rose from the dead, uh, but it's Monday, you know, back to the grind, you know, we're just gonna do what we've been doing. No, like it changed everything, right? The, an encounter with the resurrected Jesus changes everything. And so uh, what about your life tomorrow will reflect the fact that you are following a living Savior, a living Savior? Are you trying to get Jesus to follow you, or are you following Jesus? Are you spending time with him? Are you becoming like him? Are you doing what he did and what he was about? Are you going where he calls you to go? Look back at Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Okay, Jews did not bring spices to embalm someone like Egyptians did. Uh, they came to anoint them essentially for the spices and the smells to cover up the decaying uh, smell. Okay, this was an act, of, it was also considered an act of devotion by these ladies. Okay, they're going, they're devoted still to Jesus. Look at verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Okay, first notice this. 
no one is expecting a resurrection here, right? I mean, the disciples, they're hiding, they're sorrowful. The women, even though they're certainly showing some devotion to Jesus, they're planning to go anoint a dead corpse, okay? No one is like expecting and ready for a resurrection, even though Jesus had told them back in Mark 14, verse 28, right? Even though he had told them, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee, Okay, so none of this is a surprise to Jesus. He's told them this. He's told them he's going to be killed, that he's going to be raised, but no one was looking for a resurrection. And look what, uh, look what Mary, uh, both of the Marys, look what they are worried about. Look back at verse uh, three and then verse four. They are worried about how they are going to get the stone rolled away. Okay, this is a huge stone, a huge heavy stone, right? It had guards in front of it. Like, how are we going to roll this stone away? And to their surprise, look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." What a beautiful lesson we can learn from Mary and Mary who were concerned about a problem, right? They were, they were concerned about a large stone, but when they looked up, they saw that the heavy lifting had already been done by God. Um, I, I remember one time I was uh, helping friends uh, move uh, which is always a good test uh, to see who your real friends are. You invite a bunch of people, and whoever shows up, those are your real friends, okay? Uh, you just ask them to come help move. And uh, this was a long time ago, but this is still very much burned in my mind because he lived on the third, uh, in a third-floor uh, apartment building uh, with no elevator and uh, like a winding staircase uh, that had no air condition, and it was the middle of summer. Okay, and so you can imagine we're like hauling all these boxes and it's really hot and it's sweaty and we're going up and down the stairs. Uh, and then we came to uh, this item that should never be allowed on the third floor of an apartment building. Uh, it was a sofa sleeper. Okay, now you guys know, do you guys know? Wow, that was all right. We're, we're, you guys are involved. Sofa sleeper. All right. Uh, you guys know what a sofa sleeper is, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a couch uh, that then has a very, very thin mattress, and it has like a bar that runs across that goes right into your guest's back. Uh, and, uh, and when you buy a sofa sleeper, you essentially get this little sign that says, you know, we don't enjoy having overnight guests, and you just put that right next to the couch because that's pretty much what you're saying when you have a sofa sleeper uh, is that we don't really like people to stay the night here, right? And so I don't know why it was allowed on the third floor, but it was at some how it gotten up there. And, uh, and so we're trying to carry this sofa sleeper down. So you can't just like go straight down, right? It's like a, it's like a turning staircase. So we're like, you know, it's going vertical. Somehow I'm on the bottom, right? And it's, it's it, to get it over the ledge, we have to take it like straight up vertical. And so this sofa sleeper is like, you know, crushing down on me. And I know if I slip or fall, it will crush me, right? 
it was uh, some heavy lifting, right? I was, I was, I was, my back still hurts just thinking about it, right? Uh, that, that, that sofa sleeper was so heavy, it was going to crush me. It was heavy lifting. Now, now contrast that to when I helped the Codespotes move this past year, okay? Uh, and if you were there, helped might be kind of a strong uh, term for that. Uh, I showed up there uh, late because I came straight from work, and uh, I pretty much got there just in time to carry a very lightweight box from the truck and then enjoy uh, the pizza they had ordered for everyone that had helped uh, move them that day. And uh, some people, you know, were calling me that I was like I was slacking or something. I just think that was uh, perfect timing, and uh, and I learned from the best uh, about just kind of when to show up at things. So, um, but so I really I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed moving the Cotaspotes. Right, uh, all the heavy lifting had been done. It had all been done. Okay, I know that's a silly example, but listen. I'm not trying to be insensitive and I'm not trying to be unloving uh, to you when I say this because I know many of you are going through some, some hard things right now, okay? And I, I realize that and so I don't want to be nonchalant about this. I don't want to make it sound like I think life's just all kind of uh, butterflies and rainbows and, and, and easy uh, because I know you've got wounds, people are hurting, uh, you're stressed, you're anxious, you've got some serious weighty things that you're going through. Uh, my other job, I work in healthcare, right? I've had people, and I'll put people on hospice this week. Like, like things are like things are heavy, okay? So I don't, I don't say this nonchalantly. There are some serious things that you are going through. But listen, the reason that the resurrection of Jesus should bring us peace and should bring us hope and should give us comfort is because the empty tomb proclaims that God has done the heavy lifting. He has done it. He has done it, okay? And I'm not trying to downplay the large stones that stand in front of you that you don't know how you're going to get around and you don't know how you're going to move, but I do know that Jesus has already moved the stones that were heavy enough to crush you, okay? He's already taken care of those ones. The ones that could have crushed you and killed you, he's moved. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, he defeated Satan, he defeated sin, he defeated death, and you were incapable, you were incapable of moving and defeating those on your own. And let me tell you what else the resurrection of Jesus accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus secured regenerated hearts and resurrected bodies for his people. I'll say that again. The resurrection of Jesus secured regenerated hearts and resurrected bodies for his people. Now, depending on your age and depending on how many aches and pains you have this morning, that's probably going to sway you as to which one of those you're more psyched about, all right? The regenerated hearts or the resurrected bodies. And here's what I mean first by regeneration. Let's talk about regenerated hearts. I know that's kind of a theological term. Uh, we don't often use it in other spheres of life. But regeneration, what it is, it's, it's the work of God by which unbelievers are given a new nature. It's what God calls uh, when someone is born again, right? Uh, Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says that in, in order to enter the kingdom, if you're going to have to be born again, right? Essentially, your heart's going to have to be resurrected, right? It's going to have to be regenerated. First uh, Peter 1 Verse 3 is another verse that talks about, uh, talks about this being born again. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Regeneration or a resurrection of our hearts, it's, it's the removal of our old sin nature and it's the imparting of a nature that can now respond to God. It's a supernatural work of God, right? Re regeneration, like awakening a dead heart to life, that is a sofa sleeper on the 20th floor. We could not lift it on our own, right? We couldn't do it. And, and that's why you pray for unbelievers, all right? Now, if you don't, maybe you don't pray for unbelievers. You should pray for unbelievers, okay? And this is why you should, because yes, you have a responsibility to go share the gospel with them. They have a responsibility to receive or reject Jesus. But ultimately, we know that God has to move on their heart and enable them to respond. It ultimately, like, we believe God can do a supernatural work on somebody's heart. That's why you pray for them, right? And so we can praise God and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus secured regenerated hearts and resurrected bodies for his people. Another passage from Titus, Titus 3 verse 5, says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So listen, I'm not trying to minimize the problems that you have or the problems that are facing you this week, some of those seem like big problems, big, big issues. But here's your peace, and here's your hope, and here's your comfort, that Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death, that he has regenerated or resurrected your heart, and now the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, now dwells inside of you. The heavy lifting has been done. Jesus has done it. The resurrection of Jesus secured regenerated hearts and resurrected bodies for his people's, er, people. Regenerated hearts we get right now. Resurrected bodies we're going to have to wait for a little longer till the second coming of Christ. But you see, there were hundreds of witnesses to Jesus' uh, bodily, physical resurrection. And when he appeared to the disciples, he wasn't like a ghost. He wasn't like an angel or a spirit. Like he ate and he drank with them. He had a physical body they could, they could touch and they could be with him, right? And, but, but his resurrected body was also, it was, it was more glorious than, than, than uh, the body was before it was resurrected, okay? It was a more glorious body. And we know this because his resurrected body now, uh, it will not grow weary, it will not grow tired, it will not grow old and die. The resurrected glorious body is free from disease, free from cancer or any mutations. The resurrected body is a glorious body. And get this, when Christ returns, we get a glorious resurrected body. Yeah? I will be able, with a clear conscience, 
to beat dad in a game of one-on-one basketball (laughs) with no excuses about knees or back pain or any of that stuff, right? We will get glorious resurrected bodies. Uh, In the book of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, he writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Man, what a good, what a good verse that is. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. All right? Your current body is a lowly body. All right? I'm not trying to like mess with your self-esteem. Uh, for those of you that maybe don't like to hear that, your current body is a lowly body. I don't care how much you work out or how much like grass-fed, wild-caught, gluten-free, essential oil-infused food you eat, right? Like your, your body, even in peak condition, is a lowly body. But the resurrection of Jesus, secured, resurrected, glorious, physical bodies for his people when he returns. The heavy lifting has been done. Jesus has done it. And when Jesus rose from the dead and he walked out of the tomb, it was, it was God the Father's stamp of approval that his death on the cross was a sufficient sacrifice for sin. No penalty was left to be paid. And followers of Jesus, because of Jesus' resurrection, are now justified. They are declared right with God, not because of their obedience, but because of the obedience of Christ. Romans 4, 20, uh, 25, it's a short verse, but it says, who was delivered up for our trespasses, speaking of Jesus, and raised for our justification, that we might be declared right with God. Jesus has done it, and the Father said the heavy lifting has been done. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan's sin and death have been defeated, regenerated hearts and resurrected bodies have been secured for followers of Jesus. But listen, when I say that the heavy lifting has been done by Jesus, I'm not saying that life is just always going to be easy. Uh, life's not always going to feel like that day moving the Codespodes, right, of just pizza parties and uh, lightweight things to carry. But what I am saying is that the resurrection of Jesus, it brings us peace and hope and comfort. Because Satan's sin and death dead hearts and dying physical bodies are human beings' biggest problems, okay? The life, death, and resurrection brings us peace in knowing that Satan, because here is Satan, right? We have an enemy, like to hear that we have an enemy that wants to destroy us, right? That can bring up some, maybe some anxiety, or at least it should, Uh, but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus brings us peace because in it we know that Satan has been disarmed, he's been bound, and although God has allowed him still to exist, he's kept him from blinding our eyes to the truth, and we have peace knowing that he still needs God's permission to even operate, right? He's a defeated, disarmed enemy that brings us peace. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus also brings us hope, right? Because We still have sin in our life, and sometimes struggling with sin is still very discouraging. We think, man, am I even a a Christian? Like, how can I still be struggling with this thing? But no, the life, death, and, and resurrection of Jesus brings us hope because now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to say no to sin, and we have the power to say yes to God, and the Spirit convicts us of sin, and it shows us how our sin is harming us and how it's dishonoring to God. And so while we could be discouraged by our sin, The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus brings us hope as we fight our sin and put to death 
our sin. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it also brings us comfort as we face physical death. Because no longer do we have to fear physical death, for we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know that physical death is not the end, but it is, is instead the beginning, because our bodies will be resurrected just like Jesus's was. The resurrection of Jesus brings peace, hope, and comfort because our hearts have been regenerated. Our hearts have been resurrected. Okay, listen, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we try to resuscitate our hearts, right? Talk to Joshua if you want to know about resuscitation, all right? But, but like, like we, try to, we try to get our hearts to beat, right? We try to do compressions. We try to do CPR. We try to breathe some life into our bodies on our own. Uh, but, but essentially, it's, it's, it's pointless. We're trying to get dead hearts to be alive, we, we sometimes think religion might do it. We sometimes think being a good person might do it. We think maybe a little self-help, a little self-care, a little life coach, maybe that will bring our dead hearts alive. And then we heard the good news of the gospel, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that Jesus has secured for us living hearts, us who were dead in our sin. Our hearts were awakened to the truth when the truth of the gospel was proclaimed, and we rested in their truth that our hearts don't need resuscitation they need resurrected, right? Our hearts don't need coddled back to life. They need to be resurrected by Jesus. But what peace and hope and comfort that brings to know and to rest and to meditate upon that you and I, through faith in Jesus Christ, have been born again. We've been given new hearts. We've been born again. And what hope and peace and comfort it brings to know even our physical bodies that remind us every day that they're just temporary <laughs> physical bodies. Our bodies might feel like it's Friday, but we know because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that Sunday's a coming, right? And our hope is that the resurrection is coming. The heavy lifting has been done. Jesus has done it. There is peace and there is hope and there is comfort in the resurrection. And as um, I'll have Joshua and Tim, you guys can go ahead and, and, and come up and start getting ready. Uh, and as I close this morning, uh, I want to share a passage from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think it gives us some good imagery as we reflect on the resurrection. And Aslan, right, who's the lion, right, he's the Christ-like figure in the story, uh, he willingly gives himself up over to be killed uh, by the witch instead of Edmund, right? And Lucy and Susan are watching from a distance, and they're not understanding why Aslan would, would allow the enemy to, to kind of torture him and, and mock him and spit on him like they know just one roar, one growl, and the enemy would be defeated right then and there. So they don't understand why Aslan's giving himself over to the enemy and, and, and then he's, he's tied up and he's put on this stone table and he's killed. And Lucy and Susan, they're mourning the loss of Aslan the next morning and when they turn to walk away, they feel the ground shake and they hear stone cracking and they turn and the girls don't see Aslan on the table but they instead see him standing right next to them. And Susan's trying to get out a question, but her question is cut short by Aslan's response, and he explains that the enemy did not understand the true meaning of sacrifice. 
And that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself will turn backwards. Now, it's a children's story, but Lewis is, is preaching right there, right? That'll preach, right? Even death itself will turn backwards. And our resurrected King Jesus, he says in Revelation 20, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. He has done it. Even death itself will turn backwards. He is making all things new. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has done it. Let's pray.